chapter 2, those verses we read, or the verses that Gabriel read a few moments ago. Acts chapter 2. Okay, from, or from, between rather, uh, August 1942, I think it was February 1943, a battle raged in the Russian city of Stalingrad. Okay, the Nazis, they had advanced eastward from Germany, and here and now they came face to face with the strength, the might of the the power of the, the Russian forces, the Russian army. And this battle, the battle that took place at Stalingrad, it was an immensely, an incredibly uh, significant event. But somewhat surprisingly, it's an event that is often overlooked, isn't it? You know, we sort of think back on the, the significant moments of World War Two. What do we think of? You know, we think of, I guess, we think of the Battle of Britain, perhaps. We certainly would say we think about the the D-Day landings, but actually perhaps it was there, perhaps it was at Stalingrad that the decisive blow was made to the Nazi cause. So what we've got is a, let's get this right, we've got a significant but yet overlooked moment in history, okay? Significant moment, but something that's that's very often overlooked. That's really what we've got in front of us today, isn't it? Because what we've got here in this, this portion of Scripture in Acts chapter 2, what we've got is an incredibly important event. This event that you've got, that we've read together, this event is massive, okay? This is an incredibly significant event. This is an event that sort of marks a new era, if you like, a new period, a new epoch of human history. But guess what? Like Stalingrad, this is an event that is very often overlooked, And it's an event that is overlooked even within the Christian church. So this morning, let's look at it. Let's turn to the text and let's listen to hear what God has to say to us from it. And uh, certainly if you've been in Britain for any length of time, you will, I'm sure, have heard of the three R's of education. Okay, that was banged about in Britain for a long time. There's three R's. There's supposed to be three R's. They're not really three R's, are they? What was it? Reading, writing, and arithmetic. Okay, the three R's education. Well, let's kind of do something similar today. Let's have three R's sort of, okay? Because today, let's consider the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Let's consider the result of the Holy Spirit. And then let's consider the reaction to the Holy Spirit. So if you got those, I'll fire through them again. The arrival of the Holy Spirit, then the result of the Holy Spirit, and then finally the reaction to the Holy Spirit. So okay, first of all, the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And I would at this point ask you to please have your Bibles open because hopefully we'll pay quite a close We'll pay quite close attention to the text here. 
And you see, when we do that, when we pay close attention to the text, what we see straight away is that when this Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit arrived in this room in Jerusalem in the first century, his arrival is described in terms of two phenomena. Isn't it? We've got two phenomena here. There's, there was an audible side to it, wasn't there? You know, there was this kind of, this violent wind that the disciples heard, an audible side to it. Then there was this kind of observable side to the Holy Spirit as well, because there were these tongues of fire that the disciples saw. So you've got something audible, you've got something observable, there's wind, and there is fire. And there's a couple of things that we are supposed to understand. There's a couple of things that we are supposed to see from this description here. Firstly, we're supposed to see that what is going on here was divine. It was divine in origin. And I tell you this, that's something that Luke is at pains to emphasize here. It's divine in origin. See, I don't know if you you noticed it when, when Gabriel was reading through the verses. But there's a real sort of fuzziness to this description here. I mean, there's a real sort of vagueness to the description of Pentecost. See, look, verse 2 does not tell us that the disciples heard the noise of a wind. Verse 2 tells us that there was a noise like wind. Then verse 3 doesn't tell us that there were tongues of fire necessarily. It says that what they saw seemed to be tongues of fire. So do, 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 do you see it? There's, there's, a, there's a, what we see, a sort of sense of a ambiguity, if you like, a sense of vagueness to this description. Now, why is it so vague? Well, come on. It's because these people here, in this room in Jerusalem, this church, these disciples, they'd never seen anything like this before. I mean, this was completely unique. This was something massively supernatural. This was from God. And that sort of what will we see? Otherworldliness. It's just reinforced by the immediacy of the event. If your Bibles are open, what's the first word of verse 2? Do you see that? Suddenly. It's suddenly. <laughs> suddenly, the Holy Spirit arrived. And you see, that word is used very often in scripture, not just to talk about something that happens instantly, but it's used in scripture to show that something heavenly has happened instantly. So you think about Paul, Saul on the road to Damascus, and what happens? Suddenly, the light shines all around him. Or when the angels appear, what do we see? Suddenly the angels appear. And here in Acts chapter 2, it's the same thing. It's suddenly, suddenly the noise of the wind came. Why? Because this was God. This was God in action. And then if you like, just think about 
what these phenomena were. Again, now what did we say these two phenomena were? Remember? Wind and fire. Wind? Hang on. Wind and fire. You're thinking what, what, what I'm thinking. Wind and fire. Both of these things are used throughout the Bible to point to the presence of God, aren't they? You think about the wind. Ezekiel uh, chapter 37, when, when Ezekiel he prophesies to the wind and the Holy Spirit blows and there's life in the bones. Or Jesus speaking to Nicodemus and he equates the wind with the Spirit of God that blows wherever it chooses. That's the wind. What about the fire? Well, come on, the, the, the burning bush or the pillar of fire that leads the people of Israel. Wind and fire, the presence of God. You see, What we've got here in Acts chapter 2 is massive. It is significant. It is incredibly important. Why? Because what we're seeing is that in that room in Jerusalem, through the third person of the Trinity, God was at work. God was involved. God was sparking His New Testament church into life. See, what does it say? Verse 2. It says that the sound of the wind, it came from heaven. So the event that we're reading of was divine in origin. The same thing about the arrival of the Holy Spirit, though, is that it was also, it's divine, but it was also individual in application. Individual in application. Now, that could mean anything, really. What, what, what does that mean? Well, uh, my wife and I are this year celebrating our 10th wedding anniversary. I wrote this down and I didn't check. I'm really hoping I'm right, but it's not the 9th, but I think it's the 10th wedding anniversary this year. And uh, if I think hard, even though it was a long time ago, I can still remember a couple of things that happened on my wedding day. And uh, I remember, for example, the moment that we sort of walked into uh, the dining room of the hotel. You know how they do that thing where the sort of the compare uh, would say to everyone, okay, if everyone could please be upstanding and put your hands together and welcome Mr. and Mrs. Pearson. And so walk in. I remember walking in by, and being really sort of taken aback by the amount of people that were in the room. You know, I think, I guess, you know, during the actual wedding service itself, you know, the groom's got his back to the congregation, doesn't he? And it all passes in a blur. So I remember walking in that dining room and thinking, oh, wow, there's a lot of people here. Wow. This has cost my in-laws a pretty penny or two. Well, let me ask you, how many people do you think were in that room in Acts chapter 2? Because think if we opened, you know, as we open the door of this room in Jerusalem, I think we might see and we might find a bigger group than we were expecting to find. 
You see, we might be thinking, because of the previous section that we looked at and the appointment of Matthias, we might be thinking that what we're dealing with here is the group of 12 apostles. That what happens at Pentecost is that the Holy Spirit fills just the 12 apostles. But if we're thinking that, that's what you're thinking. It's not. Look at verse 1. It says that all of them were there together in one place. You know what it's saying? It's saying that what we've got to be thinking about here is the full church. We've got to be thinking about the full 120 people that we read about in chapter 1. And you see, that is very, very significant. It's significant that it's the full church because of what happens next in the story, in the account. Have a look. You see, there's an, there's an emphasis on separation. There's a real emphasis here on the division of these tongues of fire that we're, we're told about here. You see, when you're reading, when Gabriel was reading uh, through the verses and we're picturing what happens in Pentecost, we've really got to get away from the idea that the Holy Spirit arrived in this one tongue of fire. We've got to get away from the idea that the Holy Spirit equipped the church generally. Get away from that idea. Because we do not have one tongue here. We have got 120 tongues, each tongue coming to rest on an individual member of this early church. Look at verse 3. I mean, it makes it so clear. Verse 3 says, The tongues of fire separated, and they came to rest on each one, each one, each one of them. And although we've got to stress and underline that Pentecost was a unique event. Hear that. Get that right. We've got to understand that Pentecost was a one-off event. Despite that, what it does show us is that from this moment on, from Pentecost on, from the very moment of conversion, a new divine experience, a divine presence is going to be instilled into all Christians. Okay? And that this divine presence that it isn't going to sort of come upon a congregation like ours generally. That It's not going to be something that is kind of generic. No, that this divine presence is something that is imparted from this point on to every single professing, believing Christian. A divine presence into every one of us. Now, swallow that. Think about that. I mean, it's breathtaking, isn't it? I mean, surely it's something that's amazing that from this point on, God's very own spirit is going to live in your heart. Your soul, his spirit in your life. Because of what we, we read off here in Pentecost. Here, a new era was dawning. And what we see is that it was an era of intimacy with God. 
for his children. So, the arrival of the Holy Spirit, there's, there's wind and there's fire. There is the presence of God. Okay, perhaps the, the next question that we should think about, folks, is um, what happens to these disciples that, that the Holy Spirit works in? And we get it, that the Holy Spirit arrives. But what does that mean for the church, for those people that were in the room? What does the Holy Spirit do? What does he equip them to do? So the second thing we, we think about is the result of the Holy Spirit. The result of the Holy Spirit. And what we see in verse 4, ah, perhaps controversially, maybe, verse 4, we find that the church was equipped to speak in other tongues. The church was equipped to speak in other tongues. So, what does that mean? Speak in other tongues. Okay, well, please don't sort of rush off in your minds and uh, think or go straight to that phenomena that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. You know that, that phenomena where he is speaking about or, or talking about speaking in tongues. Okay, don't, don't go there necessarily because that, think about this, that in 1 Corinthians, that's a different thing. Because there, Paul is talking about indecipherable language, isn't he? When Paul was talking about speaking in tongues in 1 Corinthians, he's talking about incomprehensible language. He's talking about tongues of angels. But what we've got here in, in Acts 2 is different. Because, think about it, as this church spills out of the room, having been filled with the Holy Spirit. They spill out into Jerusalem. The words that they are equipped to to speak, they are decipherable. The crowd understands what is being said. So this isn't speaking in tongues as we might imagine or think about in a sort of charismatic church. It's not what we've got here at all. It's not speaking in tongues. Is speaking in different languages. I'm pretty sure that you would go along with that. Speaking in different languages. But there's a question it raises, isn't there? Why? We've seen that God is at work in that room. We've seen that this is from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can do anything. God can do anything. Why speaking in different languages? I mean, why, why of all the miracles that could be done, of all the gifts that could be given this sort of, this very, very early church, of all the gifts, why does the Holy Spirit give them the gift of speaking in other languages? Well, to understand that, we've got to pay attention to when this took place. You saw it, didn't you? Everyone here knows when it took place. In verse 1, it spells it out. It took place on the day of Pentecost. So it's Pentecost. Now, why is that important? Well, I don't know if if, um, any any of you in here have had the, the, the misfortune of being in Edinburgh at festival time. Edinburgh at festival time. You see, if you have been up to Edinburgh at 
during the Edinburgh Festival. You will know because every single local will tell you that uh, the population of Edinburgh is said to double during uh, the festival. Okay, Edinburgh during the festival in August, I warn you, uh, is a pretty crazy place to be. Well, it's something similar that would happen to Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost. Because this idea of Pentecost, Pentecost was a festival. Okay, not quite. <laughs> I grant you, not similar to the Edinburgh Festival. It was a harvest festival. And it took place 50 days, Pentecost, 50 days after the, the, the Passover. And what would happen is that Jews would come to this city Jews would come to Jerusalem from all over the place. And that sounds like a sort of incidental detail, right? But it's not. Because, you see, the author of Acts, Luke, he wants us to see it. He emphasizes it. Verse 5 says, There were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And so intent is he that we see this, that Luke doesn't just tell us that. Luke gives over a huge amount of this account to listing the nations from where these Jews came. So when we think about that, we see that Luke is trying to tell us something here. What is Luke trying to tell us? Well, he's saying that These disciples were given the power to speak foreign languages, friends. Because this was the point in history when God has decreed that he was going to take his gospel to the Jewish world. This was that crucial point. That these Jews that were gathered for Pentecost in Jerusalem, that God has decreed that they were going to hear of Jesus Christ, they were going to hear the gospel, and then what were they going to do? They were going to take it back to where they came from, that they would take it back to Rome and Cappadocia and Asia and Crete. You see, it was here and now, it was at Pentecost, that the gospel was going to go back. The gospel was going to explode out of Jerusalem for the first time, and okay, not to the Gentiles yet. That's going to happen later on in the book of Acts. But to Jews. To Jews from all over the known world. So what we've got to get, what we've got to realize is that this was an immensely significant event for the gospel penitent. But folks, I think there is a, a danger here with this. You see, there's perhaps the danger that what happens is that we focus on the significance of the gospel going out of Jerusalem here at the expense of pondering the incredible nature of the miracle itself. Do you see what I mean? You see, there's people in the congregation just now who are learning English. There's English classes going on. I'm pretty sure that most of us in this room, right, 
have tried at one point to learn a foreign language. And I, I know from experience that that is an incredibly difficult thing to do. It's very, very, very hard to learn a new language. Yet look what happens here. I mean, think about what happens here. God takes normal dudes. God takes everyday people. Our attention is drawn to the fact that they are Galileans, these people. Okay, God takes people who are normal. God takes people who are perhaps really kind of shy people. And people who don't like confrontation. And what does he do with these normal people? Well, like that, instantaneously, He equips them to go out and proclaim the gospel. But more than that, what does he do? He equips them to do it fluently in another language. I mean, is this not the most spectacular and incredible miracle we have here? And it's spectacular and it's incredible. But does it not just destroy And demolish our limited view of witness and evangelism. Because it really should. You see, Pentecost, it does not just mark the beginning of a new era of the presence of God. Pentecost marks the beginning of a new era of the equipping of God. You know, I get it. I get it that Pentecost is unique, I know that. It's a one-off event. But the same Holy Spirit that performed a miracle of speech in the first century is the same Holy Spirit that equips us to use words, that equips us to use speech that, come on, in and of ourselves, we are not capable of using. So I'd say this to you this morning. London City Presbyterian Church. We are capable of greater witness than we think. We are capable of greater witness than we think. See, verse 4, it says the church spoke. How were these people able to speak? It says, because the Spirit enabled them. The Spirit enabled them. So we've seen the the arrival of the Holy Spirit and we've seen this incredible result of the Holy Spirit. I just wanted just a couple of words about the reaction to the Holy Spirit. The reaction to the Holy Spirit. Now, um, as most of you know, if you're Regulars in the congregation. I was away last week um, in Edinburgh at a compulsory, what is it called? Compulsory free church in-service training. Okay, and it was a good week. I assure you of that. But I tell you this, it was a, a long, long week at the same time. Because you've got these uh, these guys coming in to speak to you. Uh, sort of, there's a lecture after a lecture after a lecture all day long for, for, for day after for day. And it's good stuff, though. It's uh, stuff on church history and stuff on ethical and moral issues and that sort of stuff. 
And uh, at one point I felt incredibly sorry for this, this chap who came in to speak to us. He's a great guy. He's a sort of world-renowned theologian. And he'd come to speak to us on a, a great topic as well. But the man was given the graveyard shift, you know. This guy had been invited to, to come and speak. I think it was about five o'clock or half past five. Or maybe the third or the fourth full day of lectures. And I kind of felt so sorry for him. Because I remember about 40 minutes into it, or 45 minutes into it, I sort of turned around to have a wee look at my fellow ministers. And uh, I tell you this, you can see nothing but these sort of fatigued, uh, blank expressions. You know, this guy had come to speak about great stuff. I'm sure it was fantastic. But it was met by a sea of confusion. And that's what we've got in Acts chapter 2. Because when the disciples go to the crowd, they go out the room, they go to the crowd, they're speaking in foreign languages, they are met with two, two responses. And the first of those is definitely confusion. Again, Luke kind of builds it up and builds it up. He says, in the face of the Holy, the, the power of the Holy Spirit, the crowd, follow me in this, verse 6 says, the crowd were bewildered by this. Then he builds it up a bit more. He says they were utterly amazed by this. Then he builds it up some more. He says, verse 8, they ask, how can, how can this happen? Then he builds it up again. Verse 12, he says, again, he uses the word, they were amazed. Then the same verse, they were perplexed. Then the same verse, eventually they ask, come on, what does this mean? What does this mean? Do you see the picture that Luke is painting here? In the face of the power of God, there was just a sea, an ocean of confusion. There's confusion. But the second response is also we see contempt. I mean, you you saw that in the last verse. I loved how Gabriel read it. Because he paused just before he read the last verse. It was difficult to miss. Verse 13 says, you know, some of these people made fun of the disciples and they said, they've had too much wine. Something, isn't it? You know, such was the hardness of these people. And such was their resistance that even in the face of these, you know, lowly Galileans being fluent in other languages, such was their hardness that what did they do? They just ridicule the church. They ridicule these disciples. And folks, if anything, surely what we have to take away from this is that we ourselves should expect similar responses when we undertake the mission of the church. Do you hear that? We should expect confusion. You know, when people see other folks' lives changed by Jesus Christ, when they hear from us of the mystery that the perfect Son of God has died for people who are sinful, We should expect confusion, shouldn't we? And we should expect contempt. Because think about it. If the first 
century church, this first New Testament church, was ridiculed. And if your Savior was ridiculed, then you should expect to be ridiculed on account of the gospel. But hear this, just as we end. That shouldn't get us down. Okay? That confusion and contempt, it should in no way halt our efforts and witness. Why not? Okay, why not? Well, what happens next in the book of Acts? What are we going to look at next week? What happens in the rest of Acts chapter 2? What we have is that confusion and that contempt turn into conversions. Peter is going to get to his feet. Peter is going to proclaim to these people the good news of the gospel. And these confused people, they are going to be brought into the salvation of the Lord. 3,000 of them in the one day. So friends, are there people in your life that are confused about Jesus Christ? Are there maybe people in your life who are contemptuous about Jesus Christ? Well, don't despair. And do not give up hope. Because we see here that as Christians, we are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And if we speak through our words, the Holy Spirit can save those people's lives. This Pentecost, it was significant. So let us not, even for a second, let us not overlook it. Let's pray.